Greetings, fellow Who-gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. This week, I'm happy to announce that I've been notified by the pod status service that Doctor Who Literature is the number 27 podcast among science fiction podcasts in the United Kingdom. That's very exciting news for such a relatively new show. We are only in our 30th episode. I want to thank all of my listeners, past and present, who've been helping to spread the word. And hopefully, the only way to go from here is up. Meanwhile, Doctor Who is filming in Wales with David Tennant and Catherine Tate, but that's still a long way away from airing. I'm very happy to have back on one of my podcasts, John Peel, our guest this week. You may have heard John in the summer of 2021 on my Trap 1 documentary on the New Adventures novels of the 1990s. John wrote the very first one of those, and now he's joining me for the first time on Doctor Who Literature. John's life and career has spanned pretty much the whole of Doctor Who, including literally right up to the present day, and I had an absolute ball talking to him about Daleks, Terry Nation, Escape to Danger, Doctor Who conventions, Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, and, well, shoot, I don't want to spoil it. This week, we're going to change things up a little bit. I'm going to discuss the book first. We have a lot to talk about regarding the Dalek invasion of Earth, and then we'll follow up with my conversation with John. Reading the book, I had a lot of questions, and we'll cover that right now, and then John will help us answer those questions in a little bit. Let's get to it. Doctor Who and the Dalek Invasion of Earth, written by Terence Dix, Televised as the Dalek Invasion of Earth, teleplay by Terry Nation, televised in November and December 1964, published in March 1977. The TARDIS lands in a London of future times, a city of fear, devastation, and holocaust, a city now ruled by Daleks. The Doctor and his companions meet a team of underground resistance workers, among the few survivors, but after an unsuccessful attack on the Dalek spaceship, they are all forced to flee the capital. A perilous journey through England finally brings them to the secret center of Dalek operations and the mysterious reason for the Dalek invasion of Earth. What are some of the great opening lines in the history of fiction? Call me Ishmael? Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking thirteen. Through the ruin of a city stalked the ruin of a man. When I met Terence Dix that one time in 2014, I told him that I'd read more of his books than those of Dickens and the Bronte sisters combined. He blanched. But it's true. I will take the opening line of the March 1977 novelization of the Dalek Invasion of Earth right up there with any of the other great works of literature. The first four paragraphs set a scene. They tell you everything. And, of course, they give you that memorable opening line. His clothes were tattered and grimy, his skin blotched and diseased over wasted flesh. On his head was a gleaming metal helmet. 
He walked with the stiff, jerky movements of a robot, which was exactly what he had become. The robot man moved through the shattered rubble of a once great city, a fitting inhabitant of a nightmare landscape. This is, hard as it may seem to believe, the first time in over a dozen years that a Doctor Who novel had featured the original TV crew. The Doctor, the, the original you might say, Susan Foreman, Ian Chesterton, and Barbara Wright. It's hard to imagine a dozen years going by without them. Oh, Ian and Barbara appeared in a couple of books in the mid-60s, reprinted by Target in 1973, so technically Susan did appear in a Target book in May 1973, though that was the book where she was renamed Susan English. And as Terence describes the adventures of an unearthly child here, briefly, he's describing a book that hadn't been novelized yet, and that for most of the readers of 1977 would have happened well before their lifetimes began. Terence, who would have eight books published in 1977 alone, think about that, eight books in one year, coming to about a thousand pages of fiction, spares no effort in describing the TARDIS crew. Around the center console stood an oddly assorted group of people. The oldest was a man who appeared to be somewhere in his 60s, though in reality he was very much older. He wore check trousers, a frock coat, and a long black tie. He had flowing white hair and a proud, imperious face, with more than a touch of ruthless cunning. The three others were more ordinary in appearance. There was a young man and a young woman, both somewhere in their twenties, and a dark, pretty girl in her teens. All three were casually dressed in the clothes worn in the last part of the twentieth century on Earth. It would be a waste of my time and yours to detail every change from, or embellishment to, the TV scripts that Terence had to make in adapting this epic to print, but while most of his recent novelizations to this point were about 110 to 120 pages in length, this book is 136 pages. That's big for a target. And Terence adds to almost every line of dialogue, while including a character's internal thought process along the way. Like the Doctor observing that construction material is very valuable, and that it's a bad sign that this particular pile down by the Thames has rusted over. When Susan clambers up a pile of construction girders and falls, in the book Terence heightens the moment by telling us what Susan saw up top, the massive scale of destruction above and beyond the blitz of World War II, and having her gasp out the words, ruined, all ruined, after she falls to the ground, but before she lapses into unconsciousness. You won't get any of that on TV. The book takes Nation's simple tale, remembering that episode one was called World's End on TV, Terence renames Chapter 1 Return to Terror, and makes it even more atmospheric, more apocalyptic, even grimmer and darker than TV. And that's an achievement. Chapter 2 opens with Terence turning a conversation between the Doctor and Ian into an intense battle of wills. He writes, The Doctor shook his head disappointedly, like a teacher whose favorite pupil had let him down. Followed a couple of paragraphs later by, Clearly, the favorite pupil was doing better. Adding tension and drama to simple dialogue, and I bet many readers didn't even notice what Terence was doing to heighten the mood, which was already pretty considerable on television. The phrase, a gleaming metal helmet clamped to his head, appears on both pages 19 and 22. Slightly different order each time, but the exact same words. We saw this three books ago on the novelization of Pyramids of Mars, discussed here on this program in episode 27. So Terence isn't immune to recycling himself and using the same phrases over and over. 
Terence loves the word gleaming, for example. Also the words strange and terrible. It's his signature, a characteristic as distinctive as Leonardo da Vinci's brushwork on the Mona Lisa. And that same sentence appears again on page 25, right before the chapter end and the episode one cliffhanger. Only now the word gleaming has become shining. What is odd is that Terence never tells us what a Dalek looks like, not at the end of chapter two, and not when the action resumes with that scene midway into chapter three. Then again, there is a picture of one on the cover, and this was Terence's third published Dalek story novelization in nine months. Also missing is the Doctor's threat of bodily harm to Susan in episode one. And you bathe that ankle. What you need is a jolly good smack bottom. Come on. And, thank goodness that that's missing. Terence does his usual amount of restructuring. Chapter 2 is made up of two sections, the TARDIS travelers by the riverside, and the Doctor and Ian traveling from the warehouse back to the riverside. On TV, that material was broken up into intercut sections. The business with Barbara and Susan being taken away by the Freedom Fighters is all pushed back into the Episode 2 material, which creates a mini cliffhanger for the Doctor and Ian at the end of Chapter 2, since we the reader, unlike on TV, won't know where they've gone yet. Also missing throughout the first two chapters is that poster. It is forbidden to dump bodies on the river, and the characters' various reactions to that poster. Well, I'd repeat, it's stupid. Stupid place to put a poster. Right under a bridge where nobody can read it or see it. <laughs> I don't know. If you have a body to get rid of, I think it's a very good place to come to. A dead human body in the river? I should say that's near murder, isn't it? Hmm? Chapter 3 opens with the Barbara Susan Freedom Fighter scenes carried over from Episode 1, which interrupts the dialogue from the Thames cliffhanger and the cliffhanger resolution. Terence, somewhat uncharitably, describes Bernard Kay's character as middle-aged on page 27, though Kay was just 36 at the time. His character is also introduced as Jim Tyler, while Carl Tyler was supposed to be his name on TV. Similarly, TV's Jack Craddock becomes Bill Craddock in the book. Dortmund's introduction is somewhat dated. We're told he has, quote, nothing of the invalid about him, but better. Terence tells us that despite the angry way Tyler and Dortmund talk to each other, quote, these two men were old and close friends, end quote. And Susan, who'd fainted in the book where she didn't on TV, on page 31 gets to impress Dortmund by copying his retort about being just as active as anyone something she didn't say on TV. There are many changes to the Doctor's confrontation with the Daleks in Chapter 3. On TV, the Doctor whispers to Ian that they must put their wits together to defeat the Daleks. In the book, the Doctor folds his arms and says this directly to the Daleks' face, so to speak, causing Ian to, quote, mentally will the Doctor to shut up. This both highlights the Doctor's heroism much more a feature of Doctor Who in 1977 than it had been when the story was conceived and written in 1964, and gives Ian a funny reaction shot. Now, there are three what I consider to be major changes from the TV production for the novelization that change the scope and tenor of the story. The first of these is on page 37, as the Doctor and Ian are being held in a staging area outside the Daleks' flying saucer. Ian points out that he saw the Daleks destroyed on Scarrow, the Doctor responds by reeling off a long, poetic explanation about the Daleks being resilient, incredible tenacity, tremendous powers of survival. The TV explanation is a bit more timey-wimey, and just, to my mind, 
not as satisfactory as how Terence rewrote it for the book. Doctor, I don't understand this at all. We saw the Daleks destroyed on Skara. We were there. My dear boy, what happened in Skara was a million years ahead of us in the future. What we're seeing now is about the middle history of the Daleks. Speaking of making the Doctor more heroic, on TV it's Ian who prevents Craddock from trying to help his escaping friend who's about to be exterminated by the Daleks. In the book, that line is reassigned to the Doctor, followed by Terence's trademark explanation. Such was the confidence and authority in the Doctor's voice that Craddock found himself obeying without question. Page 39. Terence takes the Boyle's Law slash Boyle this down pun from TV, repeats it for the book, and calls it, quote, excruciating, one of many examples of Terence possibly rolling his eyes at somebody else's work. Director Richard Martin often got criticized in fan circles as the man responsible for the sometimes less-than-impressive visual looks of the web planet and the chase. Episode 2 of The Dalek Invasion of Earth shows a 29-year-old radical at the height of his powers. Martin uses lots of voiceovers and montages and intercut scenes, all to reveal the backstory of the Dalek invasion of Earth. I'm always in awe of his storytelling prowess when I watch episode 2. The book necessarily loses some of this, as it's not a television program. The Dalek history on TV is split between Craddock and David Campbell, but in the book we don't get any of the intercutting, and the story is just told by Craddock in one continuous speech. On page 50, just prior to being placed on the table for conversion into a Roboman, the Doctor undergoes a complete physical examination. The Daleks somehow fail to discover what in 1977 Terence knew to be the Doctor's completely alien physiognomy. Chapter 5, which bears the title Attack the Daleks, is incredibly bleak, featuring the Rebels' failed attack on the Dalek flying saucer in Chelsea. Terence heightens the mood with powerful sentences like Dortmund's bombs were a failure, or Tyler disappeared down the manhole like a rat into its hole. The four time travelers are separated, and most of the rebels or Dalek prisoners wind up dead. The episode 2 cliffhanger is buried in mid-sentence on page 52, so Terence instead ends the chapter in a very typical Terence fashion. Quote, in a ghastly chorus, the surrounding Daleks took up their leader's chant, Exterminate them! Exterminate them! Exterminate them! The TV version of this is good, but not quite as poetic or graphic as Terence makes it. Has the attack been defeated? Yes! Most of the rebels were killed or wounded! Find every survivor! Destroy everyone! Destroy them! Destroy every one of them! While the back cover to my 1982 reprint of the book says children fiction, by 1984 that tagline was changed to science fiction TV tie-in. And it's probably because of things like this paragraph on page 62, which is most definitely too violent for children. As Craddock's hands closed on Ian's throat, the wiry man joined in the struggle. He threw himself on Craddock, gripped the helmet device with both hands, and ripped it from Craddock's head. The results were immediate and dramatic. Craddock let out a series of terrifying screams, his hands clutching his head. His body flopped to the floor and thrashed frantically like a stranded fish. His back arched in a final convulsion, and he went limp and still. 
To be fair, though, Terrence does soften up other TV moments. The off-screen character killed by the Daleks on TV by wailing about his murdered mother and brothers is in the book, but merely says, no, no, as he's exterminated. Nothing else. Terrence knows how to use connective prose to make the most of the scenes and dialogue surrounding it. While little is better from the black-and-white era than a long, filmed-on-location montage of Daleks gliding past London monuments in Episode 3, Terrence does his best to recreate that vibe with material like this. Barbara never forgot the sight that met her eyes when she peeped out. A patrol of Daleks gliding over Westminster Bridge, their sinister shapes profiled against the ornately decorated facade of the Houses of Parliament. It made an unforgettably symbolic picture. The squat metallic shapes of the alien invaders stood out against the building that represented so many centuries of human progress and tradition, a tradition the Daleks had ended with brutal abruptness. And after giving Susan an internal monologue describing the rebels' hidden network of safe houses and food supplies, hinted at on TV but never spelled out quite as explicitly as Terence does in the book, Barbara has a very poignant thought on page 70. This is in the Transit Museum. There were milk floats, taxis, old-fashioned open-topped buses, dust carts, all the many kinds of vehicles that are part of the life of a big city. Some of the vehicles had still been in use in Barbara's day, and she wondered what had replaced them in this future age. Had Londoners ever solved their traffic problem? If they hadn't, thought Barbara, remembering the empty streets, the Daleks had certainly dealt with it for them. The second major change Terence makes for the novelization is on page 74, the heroic last stand of Dortmund. He writes, The group of Daleks outside the museum's main door seemed frozen in astonishment as Dortmund appeared in the doorway. To be defied and attacked was a new experience for them, and they hesitated, fearing some trap. Dortmund wheeled himself forward, straight at the nearest Dalek. When he was close enough, he hurled the entire satchel of grenades. There was a shattering explosion and a sheet of flame. The corner of the building collapsed, and Dortmund and his Dalek enemy disappeared beneath the rubble. On TV, I don't need to tell you, this isn't what happens at all. Terence makes the conscious decision to let Dortmund go out in a heroic self-sacrifice, rather than an entirely futile gesture. I'm not sure which I prefer, and we'll talk to John Peel about that in a little bit. The TV version is perhaps more realistic, but it's frustrating. The book version is heartwarming. Well, to an extent, Dortmund is still dead. But for an apocalyptic story that, in spite of the body count and graphic descriptions of death, still must have a happy ending and appeal to a family audience, you do need to have strong emotional beats that you can root for, like the doctor beaming and deciding that David is a sensible chap, or the David-Susan love story, all things you find in the book. Dortmund's exit in the book is most certainly a strong emotional beat, and after all, that is the sort of thing that we read literature for. In Chapter 8, in what was probably meant to be an egalitarian or progressive bit of characterization, Terence decides that Barbara must be something of an expert on cars, because she's seen to drive a truck on the story. So he explains on page 82, she'd run her own little car in her teaching days, and had learned the basics of car maintenance, just to save on garage bills. A more meaningful change for the episode material, uh, episode 4 material, I should say, beginning with chapter 8, is that William Hartnell, who'd gotten injured videotaping his escape from the Dalek saucer earlier in the production, 
is absent from the entire episode on TV. With the Doctor unconscious, it's David who defuses the Dalek bomb, using the acid from Dortmund. The book reverts back to the scripted material, so the Doctor does not faint dead away at the start of Chapter 8, and takes the lead in the bomb-defusing business. Alas, the book does not give any last-minute eulogy to Dortmund's bombs finally having some plot utility. Of course, in the book, they'd already had their utility, and Terence does, a couple of pages later, paint the word picture about the pile of rubble which entombed one of the Daleks' number and the rebel leader, Dortmund. Chapter 8 ends with another manufactured mini-cliffhanger, a moment of intellectual triumph which doesn't really exist on TV. It's another example of Terence using positive emotions to offset such a downbeat apocalyptic tale. Remember, Chapter 8 belongs to Episode 4, which was titled The End of Tomorrow. He writes, As they headed into the darkness of the mine, Ian suddenly wondered what on earth he was doing. Larry had a definite mission, to find and rescue his brother. But Ian had only the vaguest of plans. First, he wanted to look for the doctor. Knowing the old chap's insatiable curiosity, Ian thought it was a fair bet that the doctor would come to see what the Daleks were up to. And if he didn't find the doctor, he'd gather as much useful information as he could, then return to London and take up the search for his companions there. As a scheme, it was somewhat on the vague side. But Ian felt a curious sense of excitement as he trudged into the darkness. Somewhere, in the depth below, lay the secret of the Dalek invasion of Earth. If he could find out what it was, he might yet have a hand in their defeat. I mean, wow. That's inspirational. Makes you want to jump up off the floor and run over to Bedfordshire and grab a pickaxe and go help Ian defeat the Daleks. More importantly, it makes you want to turn the page and read what happens next. The episode 4 material, chapters 8 and 9 of the book, rearranges the TV narrative, again with Terence taking short scenes and combining them into longer sections. Even with the rearranging, some of the televised material has to go in order to fit the word and page count, so we do lose this lovely human discussion between Susan and David in, oh, well, the sewers. Let's give a listen. How was he so abrupt? Tyler? He's afraid to make friends. He's known too much killing. Oh, I hope I'm never like that. Pretending not to care. Ah, one day this will be all over. It can mean a new start. New start? Rebuilding a planet from the very beginning. It's a wonderful idea. Well, you could always help. Yes. Terence, on page 95, pulls a Malcolm Hulk and shifts POV to the Slither, cleverly doing this before the Slither has been introduced in the text, or referenced by other characters. This allows for a creative POV sequence and sets up a mystery. Just what is this alien creature? The terrible question is answered at the end of Chapter 9, setting up the Episode 4 cliffhanger, as the Slither arrives properly. Whether it was the sound of their voices, or the scent of the food they were eating, they never knew. But something led the Slither to their hut. Suddenly there was a shattering roar, and the door burst open. It was there filling the doorway. They cowered back as the terrible, bulging shape slithered towards them. Again, good luck putting the book down at that point. The episode 5 material, starting a page into chapter 10, is quite faithful to the TV sequence of events, 
with the dialogue slightly jazzed up, and Terrence again regrouping some short intercut scenes on TV into longer sequences. Terrence nicely foreshadows the moment where Barbara and Jenny are betrayed by the two women for a sack of oranges. Barbara hesitated, he writes. There was something sinister about the tumble-down old cottage. It looked curiously like the witch's house in some fairy tale. She told herself she was being over-imaginative. Spoiler alert, she wasn't. In Chapter 11, Terence substantially alters the death of Larry Madison, a tragic moment, one of the more affecting deaths of a supporting character in Doctor Who. I'd argue right up there with Wainwright and Curse of Fenric, or, a little more similar, Lawrence Scarman in Pyramids of Mars. Again, see Episode 27. On TV, the robotized Phil shoots his brother Larry, who succumbs shortly after throttling Phil to death. Terence prolongs this by an extra agonizing beat. In the book, Larry kills Phil by ripping off the Roboman helmet, and Terence observes, sobbing, Larry held the body in his arms. He knew he hadn't really killed his brother. The Daleks had done that a long time ago, when they'd taken away his humanity. Larry then volunteers to stay behind in the tunnel while Ian makes his escape, and Larry is killed by a Dalek patrol on the very next page. Which version of Larry's death is more tragic? The book? The TV? My answer? Yes. Terence also foreshadows Susan's still soul-crushing departure in episode 6, with his long Dr. POV meditation in the episode 5 material in chapter 11. The doctor looked at the sizzling frying pan. Yes, I could see something was cooking, he said dryly. He looked closely at Susan. How deeply was she involved with this young man? For some time now, the doctor had been aware that Susan was fast growing up, and that their wandering way of life posed problems that would one day have to be faced. Still, time enough for that later on. First, they had to solve the problem of the Daleks. Unless that was dealt with, they'd none of them have a future to worry about. The episode 5 cliffhanger, ending chapter 11, contains a brief hint of Doctor Who's 2008 season finale. They weren't taking anything from Earth. They were stealing Earth itself. Sadly, though, none of the remaining three chapters, comprising episode 6, were called Journey's End. Surprisingly, for a book this long and visceral, episode 6 takes up just 19 pages of text, the last five of those pages being Susan's departure. Then again, the actual climax takes up a surprisingly small amount of Episode 6 on TV. And Terence does add lines in the book about how the Daleks are completely unmoved by an order to commit mass murder. There is TV material that is missing, if you need it, like Tyler referring to the first Doctor as Doc, though Terence would say that line for himself and work it into the five Doctors half a dozen years later. Or the Daleks on TV referring to the extermination of the human slaves as, quote, the final solution. One casualty of Chapter 13, however, is Barbara's hilarious Dalek impersonation. We discovered that earlier. Uh, maybe we could give it new orders. Yes, that's brilliant, my dear. Good, carry on. <laughs> the last major change is the Doctor's farewell speech to Susan. On TV... Well, you know it all by heart. I don't even need to play the clip here. But Terence changes all that text, which again would show up as the prologue to his own Five Doctor script in 1983. 
The line about the doctor and Susan taking care of each other is changed in the book, where the doctor says, <clears throat> All these years I've been taking care of you, and all the time you really felt you were taking care of me. That puts a different spin on the doctor's and Susan's relationships. I honestly prefer the TV version of the speech, but then again, we've all heard it so many times. It feels strange to read a different version of it. The TV serial ends, as it should, in tears, with Susan awkwardly embracing David and her key left on the ground. The book, however, ends inside the TARDIS, with a much more optimistic line. The Doctor still had two faithful companions, and many more adventures lay before them. But not the rescue, the next story on TV. That story is not novelized for a full decade after this one, so it'll be about two years before we read it here on Doctor Who Literature. And it will be more than three and a half years of real time, three and a half years, before, before the first Doctor, and Ian, and Susan, and Barbara return to the target line after Dalek invasion of Earth. That will happen in August 1980, when friend of the podcast, Philip Hinchcliffe, and if you haven't heard episode 29 yet, do me a favor, cue that one right up after we're done here, novelize the keys of Marinus. But of course, Dalek Invasion of Earth is so, so good that you could read it again and again and again, and that would more than make up for the utter lack of William Hartnell books for the entire rest of the 1970s. Coming up after the break, my interview with John Peel and some very friendly birds who live in his house. One day, I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. Until then, there must be no regrets, no tears, no anxieties. Just go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I am not mistaken in mine. So one of the great things about Doctor Who fandom is, even though the show has been on the air for some time, there are still a lot of people involved with fandom who have been there from the very beginning and are still going very strong today. So my next guest has the distinct experience of both having watched the William Hartnell era as it went out and written several William Hartnell novelizations and is still, in 2022, writing a lot of Doctor Who content. So John Peel, welcome to Doctor Who Literature. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, John, I've been reading your books literally since uh, the 1980s, um, but I've, I encountered you for the first time at L.I. Who, the Long Island Doctor Who convention in 2013, and I went to your one-hour panel, and you told your story in Doctor Who fandom. It was incredibly entertaining, and I've wanted to sit down with you ever since and get some of those stories on my show, but I didn't have a show at the time, so it had to wait until I created one. So... One of the things I recall is you talked vividly about watching the William Hartnell era as it went out. What was that experience like for you? Very weird. Um, it's, it's, it's very difficult to explain to anyone really how the Hartnell era was. Um, 
I was nine years old when I saw my first episode, and it was the first episode of the first Dalek story. And within a couple of weeks, every kid in my school was playing Daleks. I mean, it literally, it, it was everybody. It, it was one of those things that just simply caught the imagination, and, and the Daleks really did it. Um, they're very easy to imitate. That helps. Um, you can just stick your arms out and um, start go, you know, doing the X, the voice, and everybody knew what you were doing. So it was, it was an easy thing to do. Um, I remember going to a, a birthday party for um, a girl I liked in my class, and the party stopped so we could all sit down and watch Doctor Who. Um, and then the party started up again afterwards. Uh, I can even remember the episode was actually episode five of Keys of Marinus. Um, th this happened. Wow. But, um, I mean, it, it, it was literally a um, an event each week, watching the... You know, and then going to school and talking about it and waiting for the next one to come around. And um, it, it was just an amazing sort of time, really. And um, so many people were watching the show. I mean, it, it, it was just hugely popular. I want to picture the incongruity of a bunch of school kids stopping what they're doing for 25 minutes to watch a courtroom drama set on another planet. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it, it was just weird. And um, getting on to the, uh, the subject of the today, uh, Dalek Invasion Earth, um, that also involved another birthday party for me. I had to go to a friend's birthday party for, <coughs> I think, episode four in that case. Um, it was the one with the slither, anyway. Um, I, w I had watched up to where the slither was turning up, and it was a menacing ear, and then, you know, the, the theme came on. So the next week was going to take up with how Ian escaped from the slither, and um, I was going to this birthday party, and I tried very hard to get out of it, but my mother was very firm, and she said, you will go to the party, and you will enjoy yourself. Um, <laughs> so, and, and I remember rushing home afterwards, saying, what happened? What happened? Tell me the story. <laughs> so they, my mum my and dad had to explain what had actually happened on Doctor Who while I was supposedly enjoying myself at the party. Um, and in fact, I was just really missing the episode. <laughs> so it, it, that that was how it was. I mean, it was a phenomenon, really, um, for for well, at least from everyone that I knew. It was everybody was watching it. So you had missed a critical juncture in Dalek Invasion of Earth. You missed the penultimate episode, and I know in those days there were no reruns in the UK. No. Now. I know you're in the New York area now, like me. When did you first relocate to New York? In 81. So you probably would have seen, probably in 1985, when the Hartnell era stories started trickling on to the local PBS stations. That may have been the first time you ever got to see the episode that you had missed in 1964. Exactly. Um, uh, it really was. And... Um, I had seen a few odd episodes uh, from the Hartnell era before this because of um, I, I was involved in organised fandom, 
and um, the Doctor Who Appreciation Society had actually bought some episodes from the BBC. And they were about 200 pounds an episode at that time. And this is back in 1979, so um, I don't imagine, I can't imagine what they must cost in today's terms, but quite a bit. And, of course, they were not cleaned up. They were just copies run off the BBC copies. And I remember sitting through the Aztecs, and you could hardly see the picture in, in places. So when that finally came out on video, cleaned up, and I could actually watch it and see what was going on. That was amazing. But yeah, it, 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 was, a, it was a very different world. And it was amazing once they actually got around to re, you know, releasing them on video. Um, it was something all the fans had wanted for so long. And it finally arrived, yes. I remember my very first Doctor Who convention was in Manhattan in July 85. I would have been 11 going on 12. And in the afternoon, they did a screening of the movie version of Dalek Invasion of Earth. So I'm sitting there by myself in a hotel ballroom in Manhattan at age 11, watching what was then a 21-year-old black-and-white movie. And I was raptured. And my father, who just couldn't stand it, left to go outside and get coffee. He was wondering what I was doing watching such an old movie with such poor video quality uh, for 1985 in a hotel ballroom full of strangers. And for me, it was... An incredible experience because it was my first Hartnell, and I'd read some of the novelizations, and I'd read the Lafissier program guide, so I already knew the plot beats of the story. But just getting mm-hmm. to see it and hear, hearing William Russell's voice for the first time was a lot higher pitched than I'd been envisioning from the books. <laughs> yes. And then, of course, I got the novelization shortly thereafter. And I think I told you the story over um, over Messenger, but my copy of the book literally fell apart at the binding, so I ended up having to buy. The second copy, which is the one that I'm uh, reading right now. Right. Uh, the books come out in the mid-70s, of course. When did you first start reading uh, the novelizations? Uh, the minute they came out. Um, I mean, I remember originally, back in the 60s, when the first Doctor Who book came out, um, the, the David Whittaker, my copy of which, incidentally, fell apart several times, um, I, I'm, I'm on about my fourth or fifth copy now, I think. Wow. Um, because um, it's still one of my favorite books ever. Um, I just absolutely love that. And I remember, I, I can remember going into a store in my hometown and finding it in this book rack. And I grabbed it immediately because, I mean, we had no way of knowing these things were coming out. It just sort of turned up. Uh and then that was the last I saw of any Doctor Who book, really, until the Target reissues came out. And as soon as I saw the first three, which were the reprints, I grabbed them. Um, and then after that, I kept... I didn't realize we were going to get any more at first. Originally, we I, I thought, well, it was just going to be the, the three reprints of the, right. um, the Hartnells. And um, I, I, I was hugely excited then when we got um, the Auton Invasion, um, which not only was uh, a brand new story, it was the latest Doctor. It was Pertwee. Um, and that was when we started realizing, wow, we're getting real new Doctor Who books. And um, 
it, that that was just amazing. I mean, it was it was terrific, and um, it, it was just so amazingly good because there were no videos at the time. All we had were the books. So we were eagerly watching and waiting to see what the next one was going to be and when it would be out and, um, you know, grab it and read it. Because a lot of the times, um, some of the episodes that were novelized, I had never even seen at the, originally because I had, I had gotten a bit spotty about watching the show um, after Hartnell left. Um, and so most of the... Most of the Troutons, I had no idea what they were about until we got the book. So it was really interesting. It was huge. It was great fun. Dalek Invasion of Earth, the book, <coughs> comes out in March 77. So I imagine you would have grabbed that almost as quickly as possible to find out, <laughs> to read the chapters you had missed the first time around. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, this this was the first time I really knew what had happened in that episode that I'd missed. I mean, I'd I'd had a a, a one minute synopsis from my mother, but that doesn't tell you too much. And although my mother actually liked the Doctor Who's too, um, she was not a storyteller in that sense. So um, I just got a quick summary of oh well, Ian jumps to safety and. Uh, yeah, and it's like, yeah, oh, all right. But then to, to be able to get it and read it, because um, there was no other way of getting hold of the story at that point, uh, it, it, it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And, of course, Dalek Invasion Earth is one of the classic Hartnells. Uh, so it, it was um, especially wanted. And just reading the books in sequence, as I've been doing for this podcast, this is the point where Terrence Sticks is dropping down to about 120 pages per book, and some of them are less detailed. All of a sudden, this book comes out, and it's 20 pages longer, and it's a lot more violent and atmospheric. And he does make some changes to the text, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But you can tell that he really just must have loved this story, and that novelizing it energized him in a way that a book like Planet of the Daleks perhaps did not energize him quite so much. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I mean, um, Terence at his best is a wonderful writer. Um, but I, as, as you just said, I think he got kind of, you know, a, a, he felt some of the stories were not up to the usual scratch. And uh, as a result of which, he, he was kind of a bit offhand when he wrote them. He wasn't inspired. But, I mean, you can tell that when you're reading Dalek Invasion of Earth that he was really, really enjoying himself on this one. Um, I mean, it's quite clear. He's actually putting work into it, effort into it, and um, he's doing his best here. And when when he's doing his best, it's really good. I mean, I I just love, for example, the opening sentence. I think everybody who reads the book loves that one sentence. Um, because it, it's just so creative. And I think this sums up why he was enjoying himself there, because it was it, it inspired him uh, to, to write more interestingly, I think. Yeah, that yeah. sentence is kind of like the, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times for Doctor Who books. It is the most identifiable opening sentence. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, it's the one that I... It's, it's about the only one that I can actually remember off the, you know, straight off the top of my head. Um, 
because it is just so good. It, it, it's perfect for the setting. And um, as I say, you know, Terence could do that when he when he was up to um, you know feeling inspired with it, um, and not just simply, oh, it's a time to do another, you know, write write another story kind of thing. Which you get you get the feeling with some of them that that's what he's going through. It's it's just another story. It's not really something that that you know he's. Um, He's inflamed by where it was when once he gets worked up, he he can get really really um, excitable and read you know very readable. He had written I think eight novelizations in 1977 alone, including this one. So that's a thousand pages of Doctor Who fiction in one year, mm-hmm. and then he turns around and does the same thing in the next three or four years after that, which is a punishing pace. Yes. But the fact that he can dig deep into himself and find a sentence like that and write a book like this in the middle of that run is just a mm-hmm. fact that is not celebrated nearly enough. Now, at this point, I believe I heard that you were present at the very first Doctor Who convention ever. Is that right? Yes, I, I was an attendee. Um, it was in a little church, um, little church hall. Somewhere in London, I forget exactly where because I was not very, uh, I, I was not from London, so I, I, I just followed the directions to get to the church hall, and um, they had um, Tom Tom Baker, of course, who was the current doctor at that point, and John Pertwee, who was only just out, <coughs> and um, Louise Jameson. Oh, wow, were the big, were the big stars. Um, I completely forgotten there was actually anybody else there until reminded later, and um, I found some photographs of mine that I'd taken at the events, and it was like, oh yes, oh yeah, I remember it now. <laughs> but yes, it, it was quite an exciting time. And I know I've seen excerpts of some of the writing that you were doing for fanzines back in the 70s how did you get into writing for those and then after that how did you transition into writing professionally for doctor who um i i think fan you know writing fan fiction is actually a very good way of um preparing you to write your own original fiction uh because you have to try and recreate the mood that somebody else has set and you know to evoke the especially if you're writing um, older doctors, not the current doctor, you, you have to evoke the feeling of that period in the show, and not just simply write whatever you, you know, whatever you can. Um, so it, it's good training, and I think I learned a lot from doing the early um, short stories that I, I was doing for the fanzines, and um, of course it. It was huge fun for me because uh, I'd been writing Doctor Who fiction since I was about 12. Um, nobody else really saw it, but when the fanzines came around, there was a, an audience for it, which was um, something I'd never even considered. And um, as a result of which, I, I threw myself quite happily into it. Um then, of course, a few years later, I, I managed to get the chance to write um, the uh, the chase. And that was um, a, 
an astonishing achievement for me. I mean, reading Dark Invasion of Earth when I did, I, I felt kind of jealous that Terence had gotten to do that. But, I mean, it was something I never thought that I would get to do the next one, the next Dalek story. You, you, you know, it was uh, unthinkable, really. Um, but, um, you know, I, I was very jealous of, of Terence having written one of my all-time favorite stories. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that I vividly recall buying the chase. It was probably 1989 or 90 at my local bookstore on Long Island in Nassau County. And I was fascinated because you actually did what a lot of target writers didn't do. You got to write, I think, um, a forward or an afterward talking about the sources that you used for researching the book. So the very first thing I did was I went to the public library where I worked, and I tried to find the book you mentioned where you got your data about the Mary Celeste. And our library didn't carry it, so I never got to read the book. Uh, yes, yes. Um, I, I, I'm kind of meticulous about things if I, if I have an opportunity. And um, the, the bits in the chase on the Mary Celeste weren't really very authentic. So I, I did go back to try and read as much as I could of the actual material of the Mary Celeste, and a lot of it still survives. So it, it was something I could work from and bring um, Terence uh, Terry Nation's script around to. It wasn't that far, you know, much of a a, 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 a change, but it had, you know, I, being me, I had to change it. <laughs> I had to make it more authentic. And the Mary Celeste, I believe, operated out of Staten Island. That's where it departed from before it disappeared. So the crew probably would have had much more 19th century New York slash Brooklyn accents rather than the received pronunciation of the characters on television in 1965. Yes, quite. <laughs> yes. Which I'm uh, glad that the TV show didn't try to reenact because that could have been embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Something else you mentioned in your forward to the chase is that you were working from Terry Nation's original scripts rather than the televised version, which also fascinated me as a teenager. How did you come across the original scripts? How did you get those? Ah, well, <laughs> there is a story. Uh, when Terry moved from England to California, um, where he went to work for Paramount, um, Terry was a pack rat. He kept everything. So he, he had all of his files neatly boxed up in um, a series of tea chests, rather large tea chests, and shipped out to his new home and stuck in his, lo in his garage. Uh, and he did nothing else with them. He left them in the garage. When I was working with him, I said to him, can you send me the scripts for The Chase? Because I'm going to be novelizing it. You know, it, it would help if I had the scripts. So um, he sent his poor wife, Kate, out to the garage and told her, you know, look for anything which says The Chase. So she did, and she got the package of stuff and realized it was, a, you know, the package of scripts and bottled it up and sent it to me. And... I opened the scripts up, and it turned out that they were actually the shoot, not the shooting scripts, which is what I was expecting, but Terry's original submission scripts. 
And um, as I started reading them, I was looking at it going, wait a minute, that wasn't in the show. And and I was going through it. And then, I, because I, I didn't realize at first they weren't the shooting scripts. I mean, I was just expecting them. So I was reading it thinking, oh, oh a bit different. But, and then, oh, incredibly different. <laughs> and then I went back and looked at the opening sheets, and it was Terry's original manuscript version. And um, as I read them, I went. I continued back reading them. I realized that they were vastly superior to the film versions. And I, I called up Target and I said to them, "Look, I've got the Terry's original scripts here, which are better than the actual scripts, um, which the BBC um, had to rewrite." And um, they, mostly because Terry's script would have cost probably more budget than the whole, you know, the whole year's worth of Doctor Who would have cost. Uh, <laughs> Terry just wrote, Terry wrote what he wanted to write without thinking, oh, how are they going to film this? So he, he put in all kinds of things that were just absolutely beyond the budget. And Dennis Spooner had to go through it with a, a you know, a pen and rewrite the whole lot. So huge chunks of the story were actually rewritten by Dennis to make it cheaper. And um, of course, it lost a lot of the impact that way. Terry's original story was was just so much better um, from the point of view of, of um, internal continuity and everything. And the way it was plotted and written. So I simply said to uh, Target Books, look, can I novelize the original scripts? I mean, if people want the scripts from the actual TV, well, they've got the actual episodes now because they've been released. Whereas nobody but me has seen these original scripts for... Yeah, going on for at that point thirty years, I should think. So they were all excited. They thought, "Oh, this is cool. We've got Terry's original story as opposed to just the um, the BBC scripts." Um, so they were they were thrilled, and they said, "Yes, yes, we'll do that." So I I got to really do to um, almost write a new story uh, in, in many places because. It, it, it you know it it was so different in places and so much better. <laughs> Dennis Spooner definitely had an eye towards the slapstick, and there's a lot of comedy in the chase, which perhaps has not aged that well and is not mm -hmm. received as well by large segments of fandom. So there was the reputation when I was coming into online fandom in the nineties, that the chase was a terrible story. I'm quite fond of it. Having seen it, uh, you know, on PBS starting in 85 or 87 mm -hmm. or whatever it was, but your book is quite a different and scarier experience because you remove a lot of the slapstick and you revert back to the original idea that Terry nation would have wanted to tell. Yeah. And uh, I obviously cannot sing the praises enough of your two-volume adaptation of Dalek's Master Plan, which I try and read every couple of years. And that, since I'm going in publication order, we are probably a couple of years away from that on this show. But I would love to talk to you at a later date about how you wrote that <laughs> two-volume book. Of course. But a question that I have now is, 
reading Dalek Invasion of Earth, the novelization now, I see that Terrence Dix made probably three very significant changes to the plot and the tenor of the story. And he almost certainly was working from the shooting script and from memory. He almost certainly did not have access to Terry Nation's tea chest and the original manuscript. Have you ever seen the original manuscripts for Dalek Invasion of Earth? No, I haven't. Um, and that was one that, uh, as I say, when 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 I was working with Terry originally on the um, official Doctor Who and the Daleks book, um, because of the situation with all of his material in these boxes, what would happen is when it was time for me to do a, a, more chapters, um, I would call him up and say, "Terry, I need you know some more." of your, um, you know, your bits and pieces. So what he would do is say to Paul Cade again, okay, go in the garage, get anything that's marked Dalek and bring it in, you know, and then he'd mail it me. And he, he didn't know what he was sending he, because he didn't look. He just had Kate look. Right. And, of course, Kate didn't actually know what was um, needed. So she just pulled anything and said Daleks. So as a result of which... Uh, I didn't actually get anything at all from Dalek Invasion of Earth. I did get all kinds of strange things that I wasn't expecting. For example, I did get a, um, a draft of the original pilot episode of Doctor Who. Um, oh, wow. Child, that had been sent to Terry because, of course, at that point there was nothing filmed when he was signed to do his thing so the only thing they could send him was the um the the pilot script and it was not substantially different to either of the versions that we've got on video but it was different there were there were lines of dialogue different and everything like that so i mean i was not expecting that to turn up for example but wow. because it was in with his original notes for the daleks um, Kate sent it to me, so I got. I, I had no idea what I was getting when I got the the material on Dalek and um, sorry, Dalek Master Plan. She also sent me um, a, a wad of material like this thick, which wow. were production notes for the show, uh, which mostly consisted of the um, the producer complaining about the art department. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and and all kinds of fun things like that. So I, I got all kinds of strange things, but nothing at all, actually, um, not one word about Dalek Invasion of Earth, which was odd. Um, but he probably hadn't found them by then. Kate has, in the meantime, over the years, managed to put them into some kind of an order. So probably it's available now, but I didn't have access to it at the time. So as I was reading uh, my notes on the book in preparation for this episode, there were three things that jumped out at me that I'm not sure if Terrence Sticks changed them on his own for dramatic purposes or if he was reverting back to Terry Nation's original idea. So on television, uh, they say that we destroyed the Daleks on Scarrow the previous year, but 
they speculate that that happened millions of years in the future, whereas Terence changes the line to these Daleks must have been more resilient than we thought, and this takes place after the Daleks on TV. Would you be in the way of knowing, or if you could make an educated guess, was that the original idea that Terry Nation had, or was uh, Terence trying to create his own continuity? Um, I suspect it's the latter in this case, because when... Um, when Terry Nation wrote the the scene for um, the original you know, episode, um, there were no other Dalek stories except for the first one. Of course. But, of course, when Terrence wrote the novel, there had already been um, a half a dozen more Dalek stories. So I think he tried to make it more generalized. Um, just to kind of fudge the history a bit, because they they don't fit together too well. Um, As Terry once told me, uh, when I said, oh, I'm going to write a history of the Daleks, Terry just laughed and said, good luck with that, I couldn't do it. (laughs) Of course, from his point of view, they would call him up and say, we want a Dalek story, so he'd write one. But he didn't really stop to think... Is this in kind of continuity with the others? He just wrote whatever he thought as a story. So uh, I, I think in this case, the the passage you mentioned was Terence Dix's way of kind of fudging the um, the history of the Daleks a bit, which was a good idea, really. <laughs> Right, and of course, by this point, this is not even uh, Terence's first Dalek novelization because he had done Planet of the Daleks, the Terry Nation story the year before, and he also had done Genesis of the Daleks, which was made after Planet, but was supposed to be the Dalek origin story, which also changes the facts that were given about the origin of the Daleks in 1963. So at this point, the continuity is already gone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why... um as I say, Terry said, good luck with writing a history of the Daleks, um, because it had just gotten so confused. And the second major change, and this has to do with the character of Dortmund. Uh, again, when I had uh, seen this in the hotel ballroom uh, at the Roosevelt Hotel in 1985, I had read the plot summary and the L'Officier guide, but I hadn't seen the novelization yet, and I didn't know what to expect beat by beat. So there's this incredible moment where Dortmund tries to make his last stand in front of the transit museum, and he has these bombs that he's hoping will destroy the Daleks. Yes. And they exterminate him, and absolutely nothing happens, and the bombs don't work. And it's an interesting exercise in frustration, because you're expecting him to go out with a heroic bag and take out a phalanx of Daleks, and instead, the joke's on him, the bombs don't work. Right. In the novelization, Terrence Dix changes that, and he gives us the heroic last stand for Dortmund that the character was so cruelly denied on TV. Mm-hmm. And then the show keeps coming back to Dortmund because then he's a character in the movie, uh, the big screen movie, a couple of years later. And one of the new adventures in the 1990s, not one of the ones that you wrote, but a book that's set off planet at around the same time as this story actually features Dortmund's daughter as a character in her own right. So this is a character mm-hmm. who has a large influence on fandom. Do you know if the original idea was for him to go out in a blaze of glory, or if Terrence was just trying to give the poor sap a, a little bit of a happier ending than Terry Nation had done? Um, again, I'm not certain, but my guess would be this is Terrence trying to give Dortmund a bit, bit of a better send-off. Um, Terry, the, the writing the story from... Uh, 
having Dortmund fail is very Terry. I mean, Terry had that look at, you know, a way of looking at history and would he would say, well, you remember the victories, but you don't remember the failures, but there are failures. And um, I think he wanted Dortmund to be um, not a fanatic exactly, but someone who has has this one dream of doing, you know, building this bomb that will destroy the Daleks. And it's futile. And Terry would have, you know, seen it from that point of view, that the Daleks weren't going to be beaten by a stupid little bomb. <laughs> they have to be beaten by the, you know, the Doctor's intelligence. And, of course, a fair amount of good luck um, in the end result. Of course. <laughs> like a volcano going off in central London or in central England. Right, yes, exactly. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, as I say, I think Dortmund being a tragic failure would have been very much something Terry would have, have liked. I still, to this minute, can't decide if I like the original version or the more heroic ending in the novelization where he dies but gets to bring down some Daleks with him and have this one last uh, posthumous victory. And then uh, the last change uh, has to do probably with material that Terry didn't write himself, but Susan and the Doctor's farewell scene at the end, I believe that was a David Whittaker edition, right? Yes, yes. Um, in, in fact, um, as far as I recall, Terry was not even told that Susan was leaving at the end of his story. Um, oh, wow. he, just sim- he just simply wrote the usual goodbyes and um, off we go kind of thing. So, yes, the change would have been um, David Whittaker, I think, in that case. It reads like it reads more like David Whittaker than, um, than it does Terry. And that would have been the script editor's job or the story editor's job at the time to take these different scripts from different writers and put them yeah. into a whole the end of one story leading into the next. That would have been on him rather than yes. Terry Nation. Exactly. So, having read the book now... Um, how do you find it as a work of literature? How has it changed in your estimation since the first time you would have read it in 1977? Let me have some of your thoughts. I, I was always under the impression um, that it wasn't one of his, you know, one one of Terence Dick's better books. I always, you know, I had always thought, well, it was a rush job. But as I sat and read it again the other day. I was looking at it going, no, this isn't a rush job. This is actually a lot better than I remembered it being. Um, and there there are bits where he you know, he does sort of rush through things. I mean, for example, the bit where Jenny and um, Barbara are taking Dortmund through the deserted streets of London. I mean, that's that's like 10 minutes on the TV, and it's about a half a page in the book. But again, on the TV, you can do this all visual, whereas in the book, it would get very, very dull. So um, even though he kind of slipped through some of the passages like that, uh, he, he, um, he did do a very good job, I thought. I would have, if it had been me writing it, I would have written a little more background material, but um, back then, Terence was discouraged from doing that kind of thing anyway. Um, but overall, I think it's definitely one of his better books. 
certainly far better than the um, 128 page very large type quickies that came you know around that period that was as you say you can tell he was enjoying it more he was he was certainly more inspired and um you you have that feeling i mean you you've got the feeling that he's he's drawing you through something that he was you know he is really enjoying himself Right. He adds a lot of literary flourishes to characters' internal thought processes. And elsewhere in the program here, I've read out some of my favorite passages from the book. So he doesn't do the full montage that Richard Martin would have done, taking a camera into deserted London at four in the morning and getting these shots of Daleks going past monuments. But even though he doesn't recreate the montage, he does talk about the terrible majesty of seeing the Daleks in front of the seat of British government. Yeah. This is the country that invented modern democracy, and here are the Daleks making a mockery of it by gliding in front of the Houses of Parliament. So Terence definitely is getting to the emotional heart of the story that Terry Nation would have wanted to tell, I'm sure of it. Oh, yes. Very much so. Uh, I, I, I think, as I say, I'm, I'm sure that Terence had gotten very inspired by the original story, because it, it's the kind of story that Terence himself would have commissioned as script editor when he was doing the Pertwees. It's it has that you know it has all of the important issues that Terence liked. And the whole the whole concept of heroism in the face of danger. Um, but everybody's you know with with Terry he's got the um he's got Ashton, you know, the the um, cynical looter basically uh, he's got the two women in the in the woods kind of thing who are who betray um, Barbara and Jenny for a few you know a few extra cans of food and things like this. Those are Terry's kind of characters. He he liked to write little encapsulated. Um, you, you can all you can almost imagine the story of these each of these characters as as a kind of story on their own and. Um, I think this is what brought Terence um, his skills out because Terence can then take these characters and flesh them out a little bit and give them a bit more depth and, and humanity, which is good. As I say, the same with Ashton. Um, Ashton's an evil person who's doing his selfish um, trades and stuff. But these were real kinds of people. Because, of course, Terence, Terry is thinking back towards the warped period and uh, when he was growing up, and he heard stories of collaborators and traitors and people in, you know, in France, for example, who, who had the heroism of working for the underground um, and at the same time people who were betraying them to the Germans. There's a, there's a distinct parallel there. I mean... Um, the Daleks were not meant to be the Nazis as such, but Terence obviously can't help bringing into the story his own wartime, uh, not experiences. I mean, Ter Terry was not out outside England in any way, shape or form during that period. Right. He was too young. Uh, but but they, they were the stories he, came, you know, he grew up on. With the stories of heroism and betrayal and everything in the war, so that comes into the story, and of course Terence Dick's 
probably seized on that as well and could make more of it because he also grew up at that period and these were the stories he would have grown up with you know the the war you know the war adventures if you like and that's really what Dalek Invasion Earth is it's a war story it's um what happens in enemy occupied territory okay the enemy of the daleks but it's still that story of um you know the resistance group the um you know the the collaborators the traitors the um the heroism and that's i think that's what inspired both of them together in you know different ways you know terry originally when he wrote it and terence when he was you know novelizing it because they ha- they did have that common shared background right there's a remarkably good bit of storytelling because for the first 3 episodes of the tv serial the only characters that we meet are heroic human ones and then when uh, susan and david are hiding out in the sewers uh susan sees there is spent cartridges on the ground and she goes there aren't daleks in the sewers and david goes not every human is an ally some humans are in it for themselves mm-hmm. and this plans the seed of an idea that there are going to be humans who are not on the side of the resistance and then of course right. in the very same episode then you meet ashton who is only out for himself mm-hmm. and in the following episode of course barbara and jenny are betrayed by the two ladies for a sack of oranges but here's the part on page 101 where terence writes ashton's death scene This is when Ian and Larry are escaping from the slither. It was Ashton who saved their lives, though he was only trying to preserve his own. It was his last good deed, perhaps the only one in his misspent life. That's an incredible two-sentence passage, because Mm -hmm. Terrence really getting into the cynicism of Terry Nation's character, and yet giving him some sort of, um, not quite heroic, but at least giving him some kind of halfway redeeming moment at the very end. Yeah, it's... um kind of it's not redeeming him but it's making more constructive sense of his death true yes yes that's a good way of putting it that that's what he that's what he's doing i mean um ashton couldn't be redeemed because ashton didn't think of anything like that but terence almost managed you know to to make his his death worthwhile because of what you know the the side effects (laughs) quite unintentional and you of course got to write the authorized sequel to the story in the mid 90s for the bbc books range legacy of the daleks right how did that come to pass and i know this was right around the time that terry nation passed away all too young but did you ever speak with him about the sequel to the story or did he have any input into that in any sense no he had not that uh, that all came about after he passed away um, we did talk very much about um, War of the Daleks. Uh, we discussed that quite a lot, and um, I was, uh, you know, setting her out to write it when um, when Terry passed. Um, so that we had discussed back and forth, but I hadn't talked about um, Legacy of the Daleks, although um, I had signed to write it. I hadn't actually started um, doing very much to it. So I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll talk to Terry about this later. And not realizing, well, Terry kept the news, of course, very much to himself. I would call up, and if he had a doctor's appointment, 
his wife would tell me he'd gone to the barbers. Oh, my. Um, so I, I was quite surprised that Terry was going to the barbers like twice a month. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, you never know. People do that. Um, and, of course, I had no clue, in fact, that, that he was even ill. Uh, he kept it very, very quiet. He, he didn't want sympathy. He didn't want to upset people. He just kept it, you know, to his family. And, um, in fact, the very the first time I knew anything about this was when um, his uh, agent, Roger Hancock, called me up um, and said, you know, I'm, I've got bad news for you. Terry's passed away. Oh, my goodness. And that was the first thing I'd ever heard about it. I was like, what? And he said, yeah, yeah, he kept this very quiet, but he's been struggling for, you know, some time. Um, so I had intended to talk to him about uh, Legacy of the Daleks, um, but to the best of my memory, I don't think I ever even mentioned it beyond the fact that, that this was coming up. And um, I, I wanted to use the setting of what happens after the invasion, because, of course, um, the Doctor never went back, even though he kind of promised Susan he would. He never went back. So I kind of like the idea that the Doctor was trying to fulfill his promise. A bit late, you know, seven generations <laughs> right. later. But, you know, finally getting around to doing what he promised. But when you've got all the time and space, you can, you know, be a bit late in um, taking care of business. Um, but, I, I mean, I tried to think, well, what would be the effects after the invasion i mean once you know uh, the the world has been kind of devastated and um things couldn't just simply go back to the way they were so i wanted to say what happens after and um it was something that terry i think would have enjoyed because um he, he always liked the way i would take something that he'd done and say well you know we could do this with it and then he liked he liked that and then he would come back with with another suggestion and this is how we'd, we'd worked on war of the daleks um i i would tell him well look i'm planning on doing this this and this and then he would say oh you know maybe we could do this with it uh i remember i one of the things i wanted to do in war of the daleks was to kill off davros because all the previous stories for like the last 10 years before um on on you know on the show the, the daleks had not really been in it they they were just there as as you know like tanks really they were just going around shooting things they right. they, they weren't the daleks that we knew who were the you know master planners, the um, you know these Machiavellian scientists with no morals that we, they had been? They just degenerated, and all the stuff was really left to Davros to do. And I got fed up with that. Um, I thought you know enough's enough. That Davros has had a half a dozen goes, uh, messed up all of them. Uh, so I said to Terry, you know, do you mind if I kill him off? He said, no, no, by all means, do whatever you want, John. He says, but just don't do it too permanently. <laughs> I, I learned the mistakes of killing off your creations 
very early on. (laughs) That's right. Because he killed the Daleks stone dead in their very first story, which of course didn't work for anybody. Um, (laughs) So Terry Terry was full of advice like that. He was a very, very funny man. He really was. He was was a tremendously amusing person to talk to. We we would always end up um, on the phone just laughing our heads off. (laughs) That that was how he was. Uh, It's good that you gave Davron an escape clause because... We now have him back on television, played by Julian Bleach, who's giving a wonderful performance. So right. I'm yes. glad that Davros is still out there in some sense. Oh, yes, I know. It was just me. I, I, got, I had gotten fed up with him. Um, but other people really, really like him. So um, I know if I, you know if I was doing any more Daleks, I would not have Davros in it. That's all. <laughs> well. Fortunately, he's not in every story. He's only been in a couple of serials in, in the new series, so they, they have not worn out his welcome quite so much yet. No, exactly. And they're giving the Daleks much more to do these days, which is helpful. Uh, yes, including the uh, uh, New Year's Eve uh, trilogy, which just concluded, Eve of the Daleks, here in 2022. So they're still mm-hmm. finding inventive uses for the Daleks today. Yes. Uh, I wanted to wrap up by talking about uh, the Doctor Who that you're writing in 2022. I did a special episode on this book a little bit earlier, but it's the uh, from the Peter Cushing universe, the Doctor Who Escape to Danger. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, you are mentioned in the acknowledgments as one of the uncredited writers, and I was trying to figure out which of the stories was yours because there is – uh, a sort of version of Mission to the Unknown, and there's a sort of version of Dalek's Master Plan in here. Could you reveal to us which of the stories in this book you wrote? <laughs> yes, I can, actually, but it's not what you think. <laughs> ah. Um, I deliberately did not write a Dalek story. So oh, wow. ni- neither of the, those Daleks were mine. Now, I, I, I did the, um, the, the rewrite of um, The Smugglers. Oh, wow. I would never have guessed that in a thousand years. I was just assuming that it had to have been one of the Dalek stories. Mm-hmm. No, it was the smugglers. Um, I, I, when I was watching Doctor Who um, back in the 60s, I loved the historical stories as much as I loved the science fiction. And in fact, nowadays, I'm still kind of split between science fiction and history. Um, I, I love both subjects. And um, I, I love the old historicals. So when I got a chance to do a, um, a Cushing version of a story, I said, oh, can I do um, The Smugglers? Uh, and they said, well, yeah, no, nobody else wants to do it. <laughs> um, it, it's, it the Smugglers is not a, a, a well-liked story, even though it's a really good one. I like it very much. The, the you know the original Brian Hales one. Um, it, it it's a good story. It holds together very nicely, and um, it's uh, Annika's favorite story of her her time because it was uh, basically her her first story as a companion, um, and they got to go on location to film it. So she loved it, and uh, I. I've met Annika a few times, who is a delightful lady. So I thought, okay, I'll be nice. I'll do Annika's favorite story. (laughs) 
I know that was one of Terrence Dix's last novelizations for the Target line as the Target line is wrapping up, but I want to say that he put almost as much effort into The Smugglers because that is a longer novelization for him, and he tells it in a lot more chapters than usual. So I got the sense that he really enjoyed telling a swashbuckling Treasure Island-type story in the Doctor Who continuity. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, it was... It, it, it was um, very very much Treasure Island kind of thing. Um, or, you know, Dr. Sin alias the Scarecrow, that kind of story. And, uh, you know, with pirates, smugglers, um, the revenuers, and all this stuff, there was a lot going on in it. it, it was, it's a rollickingly good adventure story, which is... I think a lot of the historicals were that way. I mean, when you look at them, they they all go for a, a kind of thing. I mean, um, even back as the first, you know, in in the first season, you've got um, Dennis Spooner doing Reign of Terror as a, um, a as a Scarlet Pimpernel story, basically. You know, they they were they were mixing history with adventure. And that was part of the fun of it, I think, for me. And um, I, I just loved it. I, I was really thrilled by it. And I'm just so annoyed that we haven't got um, Marco Polo anymore because I remember I actually liked Marco Polo just as much as I liked the Daleks um, because it was a huge... I mean, I was nine years old. Um, it Marco Polo introduced me to a world I'd never known about. I mean, that was not the kind of history you learned in school. I had no idea who Marco Polo was before we watched Doctor Who. But oh, wow. after that, I did. Uh, because, I, I mean, as I say, I was nine years old. We didn't do that kind of history in nine years, whatever that would, would have been, uh, fourth grade or something. That, that wasn't covered. Um, the most you got was English history. And certainly nothing like, you know, setting far off um, China uh, with um, an Italian. Uh, so this this was something I'd never heard about before. And I just absolutely adored it. And it was just such a, um, a different kind of thing for me. I, I loved doing it. So as I say, um, writing the, um, the Cushing story was, in fact, a way of getting back into the historicals again. Just a tiny touch. I will say that when I got into my Doctor Who obsession in the mid-80s, my parents couldn't understand what I was doing watching this old show. I gave my mom the Marco Polo novelization, which had just come out, and I had her read it. And that helped her come to terms with my fandom, because she really enjoyed the story being a historical and having no science fiction in it. So I also have right. a lot of a, a big warm spot for Marco Polo, because of the way that it helped my mom understand the show that I was becoming obsessed with. And... 40 years later, still am obsessed with, evidently. Yes. <laughs> and uh, lastly, you are now writing, I believe, a Lethbridge-Stewart book for the Candy Jar series. Uh, that's coming out fairly soon. What can you tell us about that? Okay, which, what can I tell you? Um, I've just finished the second draft of it, in fact. That, that, oh, wow. Uh, it's going to be the first part of a two-part story, and John Blum is writing the second half. So we, um, I wrote mine, sent it to him. He read it and said, oh, great. Can you put in a couple of comments that will 
be pay you know payoffs in my book. So I you know we we arranged some uh, little crossover pieces, um, and he's going to put some comments in his you know his uh, half, referring back to my story. So we we've got the kind it, it's it's a kind of two parter. I mean they they do follow on even though the plots my plot is self contained and his is self contained, but they do follow you know each other in order and there there is a kind of crossover piece um so that was a lot of fun um and doing doing this and um it's my mine is called uh, united nations and um things are starting to heat up for the brigadier and um for the first time he's got a problem that is larger than he can deal with on his own. So there, uh, there are other people involved. I, I, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, there's bits bits of it are set in um, in England, and then bits of it are set elsewhere. Um, but I shan't say where. <laughs> Uh, I, I will say without revealing state secrets that John, who's also been on this show in the past, sent me a early manuscript of his half of the story because, again, without giving away any spoilers, it takes place at a time and location that is very important to me. So I, I have read the follow-on from years, so I'm very much looking forward to the two final books coming out and being able to read them in sequence and seeing how they link together. Yeah. All right, well, it, it was kind of fun, actually, um, working with John on this, because, of course, uh, he and I have very different writing philosophies. And, of course, we've argued in the past. Um, so people are, uh, people will be quite amazed to discover that we're actually very amiable. Uh, although we disagree on certain subjects, we do it politely. I mean, we don't yell at each other or anything. We just disagree. You know, that's that's it. Um uh, and it was it was great fun working with him on this. So uh, I, I had a good time. <laughs> having been on Rec Arts Doctor Who in the mid-90s, when you two were having your vigorous debate over War of the Daleks, it is good to see that you come to a, a happy ending, so to speak. Oh, yes, yes. Um, as I say, we, we can disagree on things without getting um, obnoxious about it, which is lovely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, John, I've kept you for more than longer than I intended to. It's been an hour. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I've enjoyed every minute of this. Thank you so much for taking the time to reread Dalek Invasion of Earth for me and tell me your other stories. I cannot wait to get this edited and released. Terrific. It's been great fun. I'm glad you um, provoked me into reading it again, actually. <laughs> it's been a while, so I'm, I'm, I was very happy to do so. And I'm sure I'll reach out to you again when it's time to discuss your book so I can learn a little more about the writing of, da of Dalek's Master Plan, for sure. Ah, okay, yes. That's coming up shortly. <laughs> Have a great night. Okay, you too now. Bye-bye. Next time, we jump ahead one month to April 1977. The Philip Hinchcliffe era has just ended on television with the conclusion of The Talons of Wang Chiang earlier that same month. But we are still in the middle of a long run of Philip Hinchcliffe novelizations in the Target line. However, that is not what we're talking about next week. The Target line commemorated the last Philip Hinchcliffe-produced story with a novelization of a much earlier third Doctor, Barry Lett's Terrence Sticks adventure, novelized, of course, 
by Terrence Dix. I'll be doing something a little bit different next week. I'll be interviewing a New York-based Doctor Who writer. Oh wait, that's exactly what I did this week. That appears to make me some kind of intergalactic yo-yo. So join me and my friend next week as we discuss the novelization of The Claws of Axos. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. Special thanks to my special guest, John Peel. This podcast can now be found on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash Lit. It really helps others find the program if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, and you can also find me on the Trap One podcast. I write about Doctor Who on Twitter using the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Next time, we're discussing another novelization, and again joined by a very special guest. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Thank <laughs> you.